0: Hi, this is CognitionX's podcast series, where we look at the impact of AI and emerging technology on industry, government, and society. I'm Charlie Muirhead. And I'm Tabitha Goldstorpe. And this episode is a COGX Festival Special. In June 2019,
1: we were honored to bring together 20,000 visitors who came to hear from over 600 speakers across 12 stages in the heart of King's Cross. Our mission is to bring clarity and help ensure responsible deployment and really move the conversation forward. My name is Eleanor O'Keefe. In this episode, produced in partnership with Luminate, two leading figures in AI policy and ethics discuss why we need a hybrid approach to AI ethics, and they give us the inside story on the disbanded Google AI Ethics Council. It's a lively and sometimes contentious discussion. We hope you enjoy.
0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Azim Azar. I'll just give a brief introduction to myself, and then uh, Dikai and Joanna, if you can do the same. Uh, so I'm a, a founder and investor. I write a newsletter called Exponential View, which I, I hope some of you uh, read. Uh, I'm also on the board of the Ada Lovelace Foundation, which is an independent research group looking at uh, data, data ethics, uh, and on the a member of the Global Futures Council on the Digital Economy at the World Economic Forum. And for my spin since spent three years on the consumer board at Ofcom, the, the telecoms regulator. Dekai.
2: Hi, I'm an AI professor. Uh, this is my uh, th- 35th year in the field, I think, uh, and my third AI um, hype cycle. Uh, if you've used things like Google, Google Translate or Yahoo Translate or Microsoft Translate or Baidu Translate, Uh, I pioneered those, built the first of those, and developed a lot of the machine learning foundations. Today, my research uh, is oriented toward pushing machine understanding of language uh, to far deeper levels, because even though um, uh, I was among a very small group of people way back in the 80s and early 90s, pushing for machine learning and probabilistic approaches to AI, uh, today, what we're seeing has to some extent thrown the baby out with the bathwater in the sense that uh, instead of building models that are able to generalize the same way that human kids are able to generalize from small amounts of data uh, and small amounts of computation, we're just sort of brute forcing things uh, and throwing massive amounts, like a million times or more data at a problem than it should take and a million times or more computation at a problem than it should take. And those are the solutions to problems in computational creativity and music, in computational social science, and so on. (laughs)
1: Right. Hi, uh, I'm Joanna Bryson. I actually did also start working in artificial intelligence in 1986, but I was um, working actually from the perspective of uh, psychology. So I was trying to understand human uh, natural intelligence, how it works, not just human intelligence, all kinds of species, why it's different. but in in doing that i did a phd at mit in the 1990s and i noticed then that people can be very strange about ai that they they tend to think if a robot is shaped like a person they think that they have an obligation towards it even if there's a better robot sitting next to it that's shaped like like an insect that actually works they ignore that robot and look at the one that looks like a person so i've been involved in ai ethics since then but um, my phd was actually in making uh, AI that's safe, uh, that, that's um, to make it easier for ordinary programmers to build AI. Because no matter, even if you use this fantastic machine learning, just conceptualizing an algorithm doesn't make it burst into uh, you know, a robot in front of you. It's always a human that decides to build AI, how to build AI, which data to train it if you use machine learning, and these sorts of things. So right now, I'm mostly working in the area of AI policy.
0: So we're going to be talking about governance and accountability uh, in in the AI world. And I propose what we do uh, is use the time available to Start with a little bit of level setting. Let's get some definitions out there briefly. Talk a little bit about some of the very short-term issues that we are running into. Um, and then think a little bit about what this really means in the long term, what the institutional solutions might need to to be. So perhaps we can just kick off a uh, very straightforward, uh, very broad audience out here. What do we mean by governance? Uh, Jana, do you want to give us a, a brief definition?
1: Well. As I said, I actually worked in action selection, so I think about this uh, all the time. Governance does include having governments, but what are governments? They're not weird space aliens that got dropped, just like robots aren't weird space aliens that got dropped um, into the world. They are the means by which, at least in a democracy, they're the means by which we coordinate ourselves. So there's internal governance, and that was actually also what we do in AI. You have modules that you try to make the modules do as much as they can on their own, but then sometimes it's just easier to make a clean, clear, safe module by having some kind of coordination that's in a different module that has a special duty to do that um, coordination. So it's important to realize that it, you don't have to be the most important thing or the, even the most powerful thing, but you have to have the facilities to get stuff done. And uh, you know, good governance, at least historically, has they thought to keep make sure that the government itself doesn't get corrupt. And you, you need a bunch of mid-sized companies, not ones that have become too powerful, uh, so the government can keep track of them, and they keep track of the government, and there's a mutual kind of thing like this. Now, of course, citizens do it too.
0: Right, so governance is essentially about, I guess, coordination of, of, of resources and conflicts uh, in a, in exactly. a system. What, what does that mean in the context of artificial intelligence, DKI? Why, why do we even have this, this session?
2: So I think one of the things that we've seen repeatedly in the discussions about um, ethics and AI and the, and the massive social impact of AI, much of which has not been terribly positive, uh, is it rises from the fact that there are limitations to rule-based systems. Uh, I mean, of course, nobody wants to throw out rules. We need to have that. But I think at the same time that we do that, we have to understand that AI is an exponential amplifier of all things human, the bad and the good. and. Just as rule-based AI fell short, uh, uh, because the real world really isn't rule-based. Rules are a metaphor. And so what happens is that you end up with contradictions, paradoxes between your rules very quickly. And I think at the same time that we're thinking about, well, what are the rule-based orders that we need to construct around AI? We have to understand that rule-based AI ethics will also fall short when you have any simple problems, and I don't want to bring up the trolley problem yet again, (laughs) you immediately run into conflicts between the logical rules. And so I think it's also super important to understand in the context of AI ethics, the role not only of rule-based ethics, but also of uh, old-school virtue ethics, old-school consequentialist ethics. What? How do you make trade-offs in order to resolve the messy paradoxes between the rules? And that goes back to the character of us, of humans, which is being amplified by AIs. We've gone back
0: to Aristotle very quickly. Uh, Dojoana. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I just want to jump in here because I, I want to dispute a few of the things you said, although I agree with some of them too. It's certainly true that. It, it was a massive revolution in the 1990s when we started thinking probabilistically. And I, if I, there's something I could change about you know, grade school education, I would love kids to understand that you have to act before you're totally certain. It's not about true and false. It is about dealing with these uh, coordinations. But at the same time, I would say that um, AI, first of all, hasn't been more bad than good. Uh, you said at the beginning. Maybe you didn't mean that. But but I would no, say, I that, say that, uh, yeah, OK. Yeah. That, we, the good mm, and the bad, I said. Yeah. No, that was in the middle. Towards the beginning, you said it, that a lot of the things. Well, anyway. The point is, that I w- as, as uh, the Secretary of State just said, I, I do think we have done an incredible amount of expanding our own abilities. And we don't even notice. We just take for granted the tools we have, and that we are so much smarter than we used to be, that we can walk into a strange city anywhere we don't have to know the language. I mean, it's a little bit dangerous that we expose ourselves to, and, and we can find the best coffee shop. We can find someplace to sleep, and we and and we can uh, communicate to people. That's amazing what we've what we've done. Um, and but going back to the rule-based systems, they were they worked, and they're still used. They they're fantastic for things like checking circuits and things like that. You know, they they were things that we used, and we somehow didn't pay attention to them because again, they didn't look that human-like to us. So that there's lots of different ways to solve AI. And, and I do think sometimes when you're trying to keep on track of what a system's doing, if you do use some of these more complicated ways of building AI, you can also have some of the simpler systems sort of running a ring fence around it to make sure that the system is doing what you want to do. So I, I, I like a hybrid approach using all these technologies.
0: Now we need to we need to jump into perhaps what is for the insiders the elephant in in, in the room. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Google, which uh, as uh, you know run is essentially the biggest AI company in the world, uh, decided it would be helpful to have an external ethics advisory council, which would be some kind of governance mechanism. My two esteemed guests uh, were both uh, appointed to that council, which dissolved faster than a tweet that you delete because you can't edit your tweets. Um, <laughs> What, what, what happened? What, what was Google trying to do? And, and what, what, what happened there?
2: So, yeah. I, you know, I think the the thing about uh, that saga uh, was that we actually it's saw... It was long enough to be a saga. Uh, it was okay. like a, a, a mini a saga, a, a micro song. saga. Yeah. Uh, was that uh, it was an, actually an excellent example of what we've seen, the amplification by AI and social media and interconnectivity of things that had not been thoroughly check, fact-checked. I saw headlines from top media outlets, I won't name them right now, uh, that said things like independent oversight board terminated after less than a fortnight. Number one, if it's a body set up by Google, how on earth could it be independent? Uh, That would be some of the other groups that some of uh, us are working on. Number two, Nowhere did Google ever say this was oversight. Google actually spent six months between June last year when they defined the Google AI principles and December, building their internal three levels of oversight review boards and education programs. This was an external advisory council that was designed to bring in voices that could well articulate cultures from outside the Google California culture bubble uh, so that they could better be informed and think through, analyze the unintended consequences of policy decisions outside the California bubble. of course, it was never named a board. It had no governance. It was more like a focus group, a working group, to bring those voices in. Council. Our opinions. It was a council. It, our opinions were not things that we could force upon Google. It was for information. And uh, so I think that this blew up, in a way, amplified by AI, because this came across every single feed uh, that uh, is actually illustrative of the problems that we face with AI. Right. Yeah. Because no, yeah, please.
1: Okay. So the. Um, I, when you first said the the elephant in the room, I immediately thought Brexit. But you know, Google is bigger than Brexit. <laughs> I mean, it's not bigger than the UK. Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't think so. I think the UK. But one one of the things that's really important, I won't I won't disagree with anything that was said about the way uh, that Dikai did a really great job of describing where we were supposed to be. But I will dispute one thing about this being a flash. You know, when Dynas Dhasabe sold his company to Google, he talked about that there has to be an ethics board. And I, I remember uh, thinking, in fact, I found out about that like on Newsnight. It was the first time I was on Newsnight with Nick Bostrom. You know, that I, I, I thought, that's something I'd love to be a part in. I wonder how you f- get to be a part of that. And, and then I, when I met people that did policy at Google, I just sort of volunteered and helped them out with things and whatever. You know. So it's something. And then they had us, I don't know when you got signed. I got signed in like November last year. It was about so,
2: October last year for me.
1: OK, yeah, you were before me then. But it was like, so this is not something that happened in two weeks. And again, this was, it was a huge process. And yet, something collapsed really quickly. And, and I think that uh, it tells us not only about what happened you know, in the viral and in the Twitter, but also about governance. That, that, that And we're all trying to deal with these pressures, including these big companies. But what I really wanted to say, and I have just realized I've gone on at length, but I want to come back to this main point, is it's worth engaging with Google because it is a world power. And it is because that it's a world power that they also need to engage with all sides of the political spectrum. We need to start negotiating with these large uh, organizations and figuring out how to govern them. As I said before, a nation can govern the small or medium-sized companies that are in that government. But there is no one government that, that is in charge of all the countries where Google has impact. And so we need to figure out a way to to, to bring this into the world order, including uh, getting these companies to pay their taxes.
0: Well, next year it's uh, it's 75 years, uh, the 75th anniversary of uh, probably the most famous global uh, compact on governance, which is the UN Charter, uh, when 51 particular countries came together and. That was the last time, I suppose, that we, we saw something that was really as significant and as, as global as that. But to your point, um, Joanna, we do have um, state-scale non-state actors, Google, Facebook, Amazon, the the, the big three from, from China. Um, and, and we also see the global south rising. We see much more regionalism and pan-regionalism um, I- I- emerging. How do you think that will? Uh, Effect the nature of a governance solution for for AI, perhaps Dekai, you might have a perspective there and come to China so
2: yeah so i 've had the the privilege of over the last decades uh, you know coming up in thirty years now witnessing right up close uh, AI development in, in the world 's two largest AI ecosystems so I come from Berkeley, my PhD was there, but I was hired with four hundred people heavily from Berkeley to establish the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and I saw Hong Kong. Uh, go from being a place where we still had shanty towns and across the border just it was, Shenzhen was nothing to a place where, you know, everything's being made in Shenzhen and, and my university has produced, you know, DJI, uh, the drone company and everything else. So it's been a, a remarkable uh, uh, growth. And I, at the same time, I see things like China now having, Jimmy Carter pointed out, 18,000 miles of high-speed rail built in the last decade, whereas in California, I'm still waiting for the high-speed rail that I've been promised all my life. Um, and so watching how AI develops in these regions is uh, is, is an exercise in understanding comparative uh, cultures. Because, of course, there are severe weaknesses in all of the systems. Uh, we don't need to get into that at the moment. But we have really, uh, I think, a situation where the same kinds of approaches uh, Uh, whether Google's enforcing them or Amazon's enforcing them, work very well in the complex dynamics of one system and uh, generate unintended consequences that don't actually work in other systems. And I think this is something that was really important. This was very important for the Google Council to be able to bring this out. Because to me, one of the most unethical things that you could do is to not do all the work to predict the unintended consequences.
1: Uh, So I want to say to what you said, And and in contrast to what I may have sounded like I was saying, Google is nothing like Pakistan, okay? So there are certain things that are really essential that nations do for us, or at least regional governments, including that we have citizens. And under the UN uh, human rights, you know, that conception, every person who's within the borders of a nation it's the obligation of that nation to defend their human rights, not just their citizens, right? So they both are constructed of citizens but have obligations over a land territory, right? So so in that, we wouldn't ever expect uh, we wouldn't ever expect that, that big tech is quite like that. They do have you know employees, they have users and people that they might want to defend the rights of from their governments. Again, there's a two-way uh, street there. But I think it's really important to look at what was achieved with the GDPR. A lot of people thought, like, you know, well, people don't take the EU seriously enough, I would say. And they thought, how can these guys just make up these regulations? They don't have the tech companies there. The idea that because they don't have giant, super giant tech companies in, in, in EU means that they're not AI ready or something is just like, no, that means that they're actually well regulated and they don't let companies get that much power just out of the blue. But anyway, they were able to... Uh, because it was a massive market. It's like 500 million people that are well off. That Then all the tech companies were willing to sign up and deal with this. You know, like some, there's a few really tiny companies that if you try to go there with from an EU IP address, they're just like, no, we don't want to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But that, by and large, even, even small companies are, are supporting GDPR.
0: But I'm curious about this governance question being broader than, the, broader than bringing the gaffers, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon to heal. Uh, that, that it seems yeah. to me that the AI governance question, because it is a technology very unlike, say, uranium enrichment, which only large, rich states can do, it is a highly perfused uh, technology uh, that is being used by states, uh, by, by non-state actors, by medium companies, small companies, that the seems to me that the AI governance question is broader than just getting Amazon to be a good corporate citizen. Oh, no,
1: you're totally right here. And that's, that's something that everybody had to sign the GDPR at every scale. And that's actually one of the criticisms that people made was like, it's expensive to do this so it might cut out the small companies. But we can facilitate that. And we can also make it the obligations of the large companies to help the small companies. That is something we do in, when, when, we, when we regulate. That Most regulation is about making stuff work. It's like the, again, like the Secretary of State just said, we're mostly there helping to make things work. Um, Regulation is a positive thing that helps the ecosystem work together. But that that was defending all the citizens of the EU that their data could not be used against them, basically, that that, that the data is part of the citizen and it's defended as a citizen so that you can't just start nudging a citizen of the EU without, without their permission.
0: But, Dekai, do you think this is just about the, the big six companies, or, or is it broader than
1: No, I
2: think, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. It's much broader than that. Because, uh, really, the same techniques are being used um, by, by thousands, tens of thousands, uh, and I'm sure shortly, far larger than that. We, we are surrounded by millions of AIs, and today, the tools of AIs are not the Hollywood trope, uh, again, of the logical systems, the systems that uh, can't understand human emotion and can't you know, deal with context and are black and white. It's all the machine learning stuff that we're seeing now. And so what does that translate to in the complex dynamics of society? What it means is that every single one of those, shortly, millions of AIs, small ones, not the big companies, are imitating. They're learning from what you and I do. They're learning by observing our actions, by the tasks that we give them, by the attitudes that they observe us doing. This, this is the nature of machine learning. And as they're doing that, they're taking that culture that they're uh, picking up from us, being embedded in, and then reflecting it back into society. Mm-hmm. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does that do to society? And as long as we keep, you know, I, again, not to say we should not be thinking about legislation and, and the right rules. But I think it is also, at the same time, supremely important for us to understand the limits of that. Society is not held together only by mm-hmm. the rules, the, the written laws. Most of the way, I mean, if people walked around and did nothing all day but obey the letter of the law, society would fall apart. What The glue that holds us together are the unspoken rules, the, the shared norms, the values. And just as AI, machine learning especially, is an exponential amplifier of all things human, that goes as well. And so if we ha- think about how the machines are picking up our actions and then reflecting that exponentially back into society, that's where the hidden danger actually really is, because we are actually the training data. Mm-hmm. And so think about what happens when that gets amplified into that that dynamic. So we have to be looking both at the rule-based ethics and also thinking very much about what it means to to be human, what it means to be a member of society, because that's going to get exponentially amplified as well. I'm sorry. Can I? Please. Yeah.
1: Because I, I, I again, totally agree like 90%. The one one piece that I would change in what you said was that I don't like to say, oh, the machines are doing this. We are doing this with machines. Mm -hmm. Individuals, companies of all different scales and sizes are doing this. And also, I want to point out that the other big thing that we need to govern, it does make sense to think about not just data that's sitting there and that you've archived and you've typed in. but. The Internet of Things, this whole concept of having constant sensors everywhere where you don't know if it's being recorded or who will use it later. One of the big problems with digital technology is, I mean, it's, it's both the great part of it, but also the, the scary part of it, is that it replicates so uh, completely, not entirely completely, but amazingly completely, and then that information could be there for a long time. So you could have a government you totally, utterly trust, and, and, and it, you can tell it everything you want it to know, and then it can optimize you know, the citizens' lives and make everything better. But that same data is just sitting there, and another government comes in, and all of a sudden, that information can be used in a horrific way that you weren't anticipating. Mm. Right. So, so yeah. there, th- these are some of the things about how do we defend people's rights to, to innovate and to create and to be different. And then make sure that, you know, at some point in the future, they won't be picked out as oh you're the potential troublemaker.
0: I'm going to let you come in on this, and we're going to switch I topics. D- Go for it.
2: Yeah, I think, I think again, um, just to uh, take that a step further, while it's super important to try, try to do what we can, I think it, we also need to think beyond that and understand the unintended consequences, because uh, <laughs> data just leaks. Uh, you know, things are observable. and so. We'll try as hard as we can, but it's still going to leak. And we have to, at the same time, ask ourselves, what do we do about that? Right? We, there's a lot of thinking right now, which is a little bit incremental in the sense of, how, what can we tweak in our rules so that status quo is preserved? And we do have to understand that what we're facing right now with AI has no precedent. Status quo, like it or not, is going to be massively affected. And so the unintended, the sort of the hidden dynamic there is that data is going to come out. And what do we do about that? Yeah, despite that. Well, you know, if you rewrite a few hundred years ago, we do have to realize that our current modern Western notion of privacy is, is actually a historical anomaly. Through the history of humanity, those notions of privacy did not exist the way that they currently do and societies function in different ways. And I think we do need to also expand our minds at the same time and think, well, okay, if there's going to be a certain amount of data leakage because machines will learn from machines will learn from machines, and that is also data leakage, then how do we rethink what the complex dynamic of, of, of society is with both the humans and the machines interacting?
0: So there there are definitely some complex uh, interactions and some novel emergent behaviors, which we've spent a bit of time time talking about. But you also mentioned earlier in one of the previous responses this idea of shared values. Um, And shared values and common ground is a critical component of building a governance system. It's what brought people together in San Francisco in 1945 for the uh, signature of the um, UN Charter. Uh, How will we go about finding shared values what are the levels what's the level at which that happens when we look at a a society over the long term which Has demographic changes, there are cultural differences. India is a power block, China is a power block, Sub Saharan Africa has many power blocks. Within the UK, the US, Western Europe, we're seeing an increasing divergence of values. So, what is the mechanism by which we discover what those values are at these fractal levels?
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great comment, and I wanted to bring that up the last time you brought up the UN. One of the really interesting moves that I've seen in the AI ethics sphere in the last, just the last sort of 12 months, at least since I've noticed, is that, you know, you guys stop trying to make up new things. You know, we've been negotiating for 75 years about what human rights are. So every, every country has different problems. It's true, you know, and that we have different problems caused by what is our, geo, you know, our geology, who are our neighbors, um, what, what kinds of things can we do? And so that will drive different ideas about what security feels like and what the trade-offs are between privacy and so, security. And so is, like is that.
0: that is that a suggestion what? that you use the existing institutions to no. tease out these values? No, no, no,
1: I'm no. Dr- but on the other hand, despite the fact that we all have these differences, We have come together and we've spent a bunch of time negotiating this this common floor of what's the minimum you have to do to support people. Now, yes, not everybody's on top of that and everybody's had the same size uh, chair at the desk, but but I think we have to respect the systems by which we're already doing that negotiation and we need to work with, you know, diplomats and politicians and and business leaders. It will all change. It is all changing. Again, that that was that I'm agreeing 98% with what you said.
2: The two biggest ecosystems in the world uh, are in, for AI are in Silicon Valley and in uh, China. Look around you. What is the voice here? Um, and this has happened at every single one of the meetings that I've been to. Uh, now, when we talk about universal, you have to ask, what are we actually talking about here? There's, you know, in, in the study of ethics, there's a strong distinction between prescriptive ethics and descriptive ethics. In prescriptive ethics, you know, that's the normative stuff. That's like I'm going to tell you what the rules are that you need to obey, right? That's your grammar school teacher. But in descriptive ethics, that's the scientific part. That's where you go and you actually embed deeply into different cultures, very different cultures, and you describe how are those systems of ethics interacting with society so that they sustain and become stable. And I do think that to answer your question, it is, We need to do our groundwork. We need to do a lot more homework in the descriptive ethics situations. Because before you rush to prescription, you need to understand, again, the unintended consequences of how those prescriptions might play out in societies that have very different education levels, that have different shared cultural norms, that have different models of governance and so forth. I think to get to where, uh, as he w- wants us to go, we need to do that, come together, and have a joint conversation that is more balanced. And,
1: and where does okay, that where wait, does that coming together? Wait. OK, go. Okay. because okay. Uh, this time I only agree about 20% with what okay. you said. <laughs> I, I, personally, I was just at a meeting, uh, was it two, three weeks ago, in Seoul, Korea, where it was the joint OSCE and ASEAN meeting. And so it was, you know. More than half uh, people from from the uh, the Pacific region, uh, mostly Koreans, to be honest, because the Koreans had hosted it, but still the um, and the other really great meeting I was that not too long ago was the uh, Internet Governance Forum, which is put on by the UN, and they really make sure to have uh, people who aren't usually heard from there. They they do the Global South, they you know South, South Americans. There's incredible. There are incredible regional people who will then come out into those meetings when you have them, uh, and and they really have great voices. And actually, one of them was Twitter. They were astounded to be at the table, but they're like, "You guys are uh, causing power. You may not be as rich as these other countries, but you're changing things. You have to sit at these tables too." And they were looking embarrassed to be there, you know. But but yeah, the so uh, yeah.
0: So you think that there's there's more. Coherence and consistency across values.
1: Oh, yeah, so that was the other thing. Even more importantly, I really disagree that descriptive ethics is in any way prescriptive ethics. It is true that you need to understand the cultures and the affordances, but there's a lot, you know, my my group. No, no, no,
2: I'm distinguishing between the two.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay. But you said we needed to do more work understanding what people were already doing, and I and I think that's sort of true. But we cannot use that and say that AI has to do what people already do. So the
2: level of nuance problem. that I'm seeing in in the discussions of ethics are still, you know, even in meetings like this. And I was in I was in Beijing with Partnership on AI uh, two weeks ago. Uh, I've been at a lot of these meetings. The composition of the room is extremely different. Even in those situations, what you see is you see a handful, maybe two representatives from the 1.3 billion uh, population Chinese, and the rest are European. Of course, accepting the host country, you always have a lot of people from the host country. What you don't see right now is the nuances in the descriptions. If you look at, for example, the IEEE documents that were submitted uh, at the European Union a a few months ago, the descriptions of ethics dived into all sorts of uh, Western ethics traditions that were quite nuanced. The description of others were relegated to uh, not quite a footnote, but they were really really brief i don 't know if you looked at the section on Buddhist ethics well, that was yeah. a very narrow sliver of Buddhist thought, yeah. uh, and the rest just sort of fell by the wayside
1: i I, I agree that I e tried to do a lot of reach out, but then they didn 't actually facilitate I agree and they, and they also didn't succeed but other organizations are succeeding, including organizations that are being pushed from that and I have been to a lot of meetings where they are yeah, they, they still get like disproportionately British and American people, probably because we're so talkative.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> but, pull the I'm <laughs> gonna I'm gonna pull the slightly nerd klaxon alert okay. there. Um, we've got three minutes left, and, and I want to touch on to uh, 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 let's pull back out now. Um, the last uh, most significant uh, governance compact we have, I think, is uh, the 75 soon to be 75 year old um, UN Charter. Uh, if we think about um, a a, a governance charter for AI, for the AI enabled world, one that is going to last the distance against the backdrop of a fracturing and fragmenting world, uh, on, which is sitting on top of a set of exponential technologies. Uh, what does the institutional institution need to look like in order to last the distance and all, in order to be able to course correct and trim itself against these types of underlying dynamics?
1: You want me to go first.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you've only got a minute, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, um, I, I just, I think I I really, really like um, the model of the EU. I like the idea that you, you make a lot of treaties, but then the nations themselves are the ones that have the courts, that have the armies, that have the laws. And so I think we need to come up with some other hubs. So globally, different regions will have different things that work for them, and they have a coordinated network between those hubs. And then they will form treaties with with other tech organizations about what they're allowed to do within those regions that are being governed that way
2: i'm going to i'm going to complement that i think that what we need is like exponentially more people to people contact the all the issues that we're talking about right now come from where people have depth of understanding versus where people have the most superficial of understanding. And the best way to get over that is for individuals across these cultures to get to know each other better Um, and to learn to love what is great about other cultures. And we have to do this on a mass scale. Now, traditionally, that's been really difficult. Um, Now we have AI and the internet. That is what we should be using AI and the internet to do.
0: Well, thank you uh, to both of you. There is so much more to discuss uh, in this. I know that uh, you have uh, sort of public presences as well. What is a good way to keep in touch with you, Joanna?
1: Oh, the best thing to do is to try to tweet at me because that keeps it short and I might actually read it. Uh, but but you can try emailing me. If you either tweet at me or you email me and I don't respond, try again in a couple of days because every so often I just get infinite amounts of stuff and I don't respond. And, know and
2: what's it's going. J2 Bryson, is that right?
1: J2 Bryson on Twitter, yeah. How
2: about you, DeKai? Uh, I'm going to get massive flack for this. Um, Facebook, uh, <laughs> hit, uh, hit me up, Messenger, 1, DeKai1, D E K A I 1. You can tweet at me at DeKai123, uh, but uh, I don't guarantee. Uh, that to work as well. Yeah, it
1: depends what's happening
2: Fantastic. Well,
0: thank you very much. I want to make one tiny announcement before we clear the stage. At 12.30 on my stage, cutting edge, the second geodesic dome, I have Thomas Reardon who will be talking about neural interfaces, mind-controlled interfaces. Reardon's a really great storyteller, and if you have time, I would encourage you. It will be standing room only, so get there early. And thank you very much to the panelists. Thank you. for listening if you found this episode compelling there are three things we'd love you to do one subscribe to our podcast series so you don't miss another episode and please share it with your friends number two if you want to experience cogx yourself go to cogx.co and register so you hear about next year's event and number three if you have any other questions you'd like to ask anybody in the community don't forget to register on cognitionx.com and ask a question on the global knowledge network Thanks for listening
1: and let's keep moving the conversation forward together.